Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Catechism. At BRCC, we believe that our catechism is a useful tool to help us understand and grow in our faith. But why? Find out in our series, Catechism. We're, uh, today, we're going to be looking uh, at the third in this little short series we're doing on the early questions in our catechism. I want to remind us of catechism. It's an old word, but all it really means is it was a question and answer way for us to learn about our faith, what we believe, what are the kind of key critical things. And today we're going to be looking at John chapter 17. This is Jesus' final prayer. It's what's oftentimes known as his high priestly prayer, where right before he's betrayed, right before Judas comes with the armed guards, Jesus is praying. And John gives us the content of this prayer, and we really see the heart of Jesus, who he was, what he had come for, what he had done here in this final prayer. And so we're going to look at it today to try and understand the central message of the Bible. Uh, it'll be all up here on the screen. It's also in your booklet, so you can follow along. This is the uh, New International Version that I'm reading out of, and I encourage you to follow along. And hear now the Word of God. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I revealed you to those who you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, 
I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for all those who will believe in me through their message, that they, all of them, may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. As I was thinking about this question that we're looking at today of, you know, what is the central message of the Bible, I remembered an instance where years ago my lovely wife, for, my birth, for her birthday one year, went out and rented what she knew was one of my favorite movies, which was Monty Python and the Search for the Holy Grail. And we laid down to watch it on an old VCR machine. For those of you who are a little younger, that was before DVDs. They used to have these things called tapes you would pop in. And we were watching it, and the opening scene happened where these guys come out, and they don't have horses. There's a guy running along behind the king, clopping these two coconuts together to make the sound of a horse running. And I took heart by the fact that my young bride snickered and laughed at that a little bit. And I thought, there's hope. She might like this movie. And then for the next two hours, I laughed until I cried, and my side hurt for two days. I laughed so hard. And my wife sat there and kept looking at the TV and then looking at me and then looking back at the TV and then looking at me. And it came to the end, which I won't ruin for you, but the end makes no more sense than the rest of the movie. It's just this random, bizarre ending. And then they started rolling the credits, and I wiped my eyes, and I said, thank you for getting that. That was funny. And Linda said, that's, that's not the end of the movie. And I said, yeah, that's the end of the movie. And she said, what was the plot? What was the point of this movie? And I was like, plot? It's a Monty Python movie. There's no plot ever to a Monty Python movie. It's just random stuff thrown together. Well, that was the dumbest thing I've ever watched in my life. And I laughed her, and I've always thought of it, because if you've ever watched a movie or read a book, and you can't figure out what the plot is, it's a very frustrating experience. You, you can't enjoy what's going on. The person next to you may be enjoying it, you have no idea what's happening. It's a very frustrating, confusing thing. And Bible reading, opening the Scripture, can be frustrating like that if there doesn't seem to be a plot. And many people approach the Bible kind of like it's Monty Python in the search for the Holy Grail. It's a whole bunch of random skits and stories thrown together, and there really isn't anything going on. It's just going to kind of meander, and all of a sudden you come to Revelation, and that's the end, and well, that was it. It's over. Uh, that's not the way the Scripture is, thankfully. So the third question in our catechism tries to basically in one sentence say, if we had to summarize the entire message of the Bible, if you had to give a one-sentence plot to what's going on from Genesis to Revelation, 
what would it be? So what's the central message of the Bible is our question. And the way we've answered that question is this. The central message of the Bible is that God is bringing glory to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ as he creates and redeems a people in whom he lives by his spirit so that they will glorify and enjoy him forever. We're trying to say that that's, that's really what the Bible's about. And so every other story you're reading relates back to this. God's bringing glory to himself. It's centered on Jesus Christ, the Son, as there are a people that God is making who by the Holy Spirit are going to be able to glorify and enjoy God. Now, a couple things you can notice here is this is a Trinitarian answer because we have a Trinitarian faith. So notice there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to this uh, in a few questions to talk about this because you can't understand the Christian faith and you don't understand the Scripture if you don't understand the Trinity. It, it all doesn't really make sense. Secondly, notice that it's referring back to questions one and two here, particularly question one, because God's making this people, and what are that people supposed to do? Glorify and enjoy Him forever, because that's the central purpose of humanity. The reason you're here and I'm here is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So this question doesn't launch off in a new direction, because if that's why we're here and the Scripture is given to us to teach us how to do that, then we ought to expect that the plot's going to be answering that question. Well, how do I do that? And that's actually what it's doing. God is bringing glory to Himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ as He's creating and redeeming this people in whom the Spirit lives so that they might glorify and enjoy Him forever. So let's dive in and look at the three parts of this. And there's way more in John 17 than I can possibly cover. But I'm going to just point out a few things, and you can go back and look at this text and see this theme developed over and over and over again. Notice the first thing is glory to God the Father, which is a key theme in John 17. Notice Jesus there as he's doing his prayer in the early section in those first five verses. In verse 1 he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. So notice when Jesus is beginning his prayer, what does it start with? Father, I want you to get glory. That, that, that's what this is about. It's about you getting glory. Notice in verses 4 and 5, he says, I have brought you glory. Jesus is reflecting back on his entire life. This is his final prayer as he's about to be arrested in just moments. And he says, I have brought you glory on earth. And then in verse 5, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So here we're starting to already get this Trinitarian emphasis. The son's death is going to glorify the Father. The Son's life and work brought glory to the Father. And Jesus there in verse 5 says, I enjoyed a glory with you before the world even began. And we would learn from the rest of Scripture that it was really the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a Trinitarian glory before creation even existed. And notice there in verse 5, if you get this, Jesus says, I was enjoying this, this presence uh, this, I was in your presence and there was this glory that was being shared between the two of us reminds us God did not make us and the Bible is not here to tell us how you and I are the center of the universe. It is not here to tell you and me that God was lonely, that God was needy and therefore he made us. No, the picture Jesus gives there in verse 5 is that the Trinity was already enjoying one another 
fully. It is out of that enjoyment, out of that glory, that creation comes to be, that you and I come to be. But that glory was there before anything else existed. And so, just like we saw in our previous questions, the universe is here to glorify God. Now, think about this. What this means is the glory of God is central before creation. It's the central goal of all creation. And therefore, it's not surprising to find that it's a central message in Scripture. Let me just give a few verses. And before I even go to these, if you read in the rest of John 17, I didn't bother to count it out, but if you notice all the way through the prayer, Jesus keeps mentioning glory. Father, I want them to come into the glory. I want them to experience the glory I've had with you. All the way through the prayer, glory, glory, glory. I've told you before, if sometimes you're struggling to find out what the key point of something is, just start counting which words appear over and over and over again. God's not stuttering. He has a reason for saying those words over and over again, and no word appears more than glory in John 17. And it's throughout the Scripture. For example, in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, this speaks of the creation. The psalmist there, in Psalm 19, by the way, the whole thing is about God's revelation, His revelation in creation and then His revelation in Scripture. And it begins with this. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. So notice the psalmist says right from the beginning, when you look out at creation, what you ought to see and what you ought to hear is glory to God. That's what the creation is speaking. And if we're not hearing that, it's not because creation is not speaking, it's because our ears are not working. So that's the, uh, the creation doing this. In Luke 2.14, when Jesus comes, remember we sing this a lot and talk about it a lot at Christmas, but it's, notice the theme, when God's Son comes, the angels sing, and what is their song? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. We oftentimes think of Christmas and we like to think about the peace to us. And that is there, but what's first and primary? Glory to God. See, there, there can't be peace on earth. There can't be favor between us and God and, and fixing our relationships with one another until there's glory to God. And so the first thing that Jesus comes for is to establish the glory of God. The angels tell us right there in the thing. And if you go all the way to the end of the Bible, and you see in the very final verses in Revelation 21, we're looking at the pictures of the new Jerusalem. And we're told in Revelation 21, 23, the city, the new Jerusalem, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. And if you think back, if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, God speaks and says, let there be light, and this is before there's sun and moon. Okay, There's some kind of light that is radiating everything before the sun is giving us actual light on the planet. And here at the end in Revelation, we're right back to the same thing. We don't need sun and moon because we've come full circle. God's will, purpose, and plan is accomplished. There isn't a plan B. It didn't get derailed. God does what God set out to do. And primary, central in that, is the glory of God. Creation's very existence declares that glory. Jesus' coming brought that glory to fruition. And the new creation is going to radiate and pulse with the glory of God. When your body is raised from the dead, and when my body is raised out of the grave, you're going to radiate, you're going to pulse with the very glory of God. 
That is, and that's good news for us. C.S. Lewis, uh, in that memorable phrase, in the weight of glory, says that if we could even see ourselves on that final day, you and I would be tempted to fall on our face before ourselves and worship because we're going to be so filled with the glory of God, it would be impossible for us to not even recognize ourselves as we're going to be. And that's going to be to God's glory. Everything is going to radiate the glory of God. And so the glory of God is the central message in Scripture. And if we don't read it through that lens, we're going to distort it badly. Now, this is very important for us because many people today, we come to the Bible and I come to the Bible to find myself. And if you do that, you're going to be like my wife sitting there looking at Monty Python and you're going to be very confused. It's not going to make much sense. The whole thing's going to, you're going to come to the end and you're going to say, I'm, I'm not sure I got what that was all about because we've started with the wrong idea in mind. God is central in Scripture, not us. And here's another thing, and we need to understand this. Your needs and my needs are not first and foremost in Scripture. God is. And that is in everything. You need to understand, Jesus first lived for the Father. Jesus first died for the Father in obedience to the Father. Does that work salvation for us? <laughs> yes, thanks be to God. It does. But first and primary is obedience to God. First and primary is God and His glory. So that's how we have to read the Scripture. The second point is that the main way God is doing this is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God could have picked to reveal himself in any way, and he does in many ways, through creation, as we've said, and other things. But the primary way that God does this is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so again, if we go back to John 17, and I'm largely looking at the first few verses, you can see these themes develop through all of John 17. But notice how Jesus ties that glory to God with his own person and work. In verses 1 to 4, it says, He looks to heaven and he prays, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son. Okay, Father, I've come to bring you glory, but now the glory is being channeled through me, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. So notice, Jesus has how much authority? All authority. Let's, let's say it again. How much authority does Jesus have? Is, is there any bit of authority in this universe that Jesus is still trying to wrestle back from somebody? So you remember? And, and the risen, ascended Christ, who has just conquered and crushed death, remember, he stands there and says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, therefore, Go. If, if you don't understand this, if you don't understand that Jesus has all authority, the whole Scripture starts to get twisted. And life, by the way, like Marty said, you're going to experience spiritual vertigo. Everything's going to start appearing upside down if we forget that Jesus has all authority and that He is here to give eternal life to all those that the Father has given Him. Notice in verse 3, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Same thing Jesus said on that final night there in John 14, I am 
the way, the truth, and the life. And what's the next words? No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other path to God other than Jesus Christ. He prays the same thing here. Eternal life is knowing you by me, Father. That's how they know it. And then in verse 4, he says, I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. God's getting the glory, but he's doing it specifically through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you look at this, what we learn in Jesus' prayer here, and again, you can continue it out through John 17, is that God has chosen to channel all glory through the person and work of the Son. So when I look in the Scripture, who's the central character of the whole Bible? Jesus. He is the central character. Now I'm going to take a couple of minutes to unpack this for us a little bit because hear me on this. Most evangelicals do not read their Bible this way. We read our Bible with all these different people being the center. Most importantly, myself is what I'm looking to be the center. But then I'm looking for all these other folks. But they're not. Everything is about Jesus. Now, why do I say this? John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, and he says this to them. You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about what? Me. See, now, when Jesus is arguing this with the Pharisees, what portion of our Bible do we have that's apparently all about Jesus? The Old Testament. That's it, the New Testament. So Jesus isn't saying, well, the New Testament's about me. He's saying when you're opening up and you start reading Genesis, it's talking to you about me. When you're reading Exodus, it's about me. When you're reading Leviticus, it's about me. Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through, and our parlance to Malachi, and theirs it would have been Chronicles was their last book because they ordered them differently. It's all about me. After he is risen, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he says this, in uh, Luke 24, and it's in two different verses, he says, he says it on two different uh, times. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so notice you got Moses and the prophets. That's the law and the prophets. In verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written me about the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In the Hebrew Old in the Hebrew canon, as they knew it, what we call the Old Testament, there were three parts. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And the first and most important writing was Psalms. It was the, the one right up front, and it's the largest book in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is saying, look, the entire Old Testament is about me. When you read the law, it's about me. When you read the prophets, it's about me. When you are praying the Psalms as they unroll the scroll every week, the songs you're singing are about me. When you look at the wisdom literature, I am the wisdom of God. When you look at the one who is to come, I am that coming king. Every promise, every office, everything in the scripture is about me. That's what Jesus tells us how we are to read the Old Testament. The whole Bible is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you open it up and you're looking for yourself, 
or you're looking for someone or something else, you're going to be like Linda at the end of the movie and say, I, I don't quite get this. This doesn't make any sense to me. What's the plot? Well, you're misunderstanding the plot because it was about Jesus. Now, let me give you an example of this where I say many evangelicals fall short in this. Let me, let me show a verse. Because we have the New Testament tells us what this verse means. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7 says this. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring, or the word can be translated seed, it's the Hebrew word zerah, the Greek word sperma. Uh, to your offspring, or your seed, I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him. And here's the question. You read that verse. Who is that about? Now let me, I'm going to help you. If you say Isaac, you're wrong. If you say Jacob, if you say the Israelites, you're wrong. Now why do I say that? Not just because Jesus says it's all about him, but because the New Testament tells us who this verse is about. In Galatians 3.16, the Apostle Paul says this, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The Greek word is sperma. The Hebrew word is zerah. Same word, Genesis 12. The Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is who? Christ. So Paul says, how many people is Genesis 12, 7 about? One. Now, I want to tell you, most evangelicals do not read it that way. But we're not taking Jesus seriously. It's all about Him. Every word of it. What we're doing is, we're reading it like the Pharisees read it. We're reading it to say, God has some promises. He has some way that things apply to people outside of Jesus Christ. But friend, God has no covenant promises outside of Jesus Christ. If you are outside of Christ, you have no covenant promises to claim. And if you are inside Jesus Christ, how many covenant promises do you have to claim? Oh, all of them. And that, friends, is gospel. That, friends, is very good news. And in the New Testament, you can sit there and you can look and you can see that the reason Paul's doing this, and he's trying to point this out to the Galatians, and he's saying, you're wanting to go back to an old way. You're acting as if there is something more God has for you outside of Jesus Christ. But there is nothing outside of Jesus Christ. When God gave that promise to Abraham that you Galatians are now trying to get by some other way, the promise was to Jesus. And it wasn't to many people. It's not like it was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and everybody along the way. And then Jesus comes along, Paul says, did you notice it wasn't to seeds, it was to seed, one. Now, I'm going to tell you, seed is just in Hebrew and Greek like it is in English. You don't usually say seeds. Normally we say seed, and seed can be one seed or it can be many seeds. But Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is telling us it's one. It's singular. And that one is Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. He's not just interested in a little strip of land in one particular part of the earth. How much of the earth has Jesus Christ inherited? 
all of it. Ask of me, it says in Psalm 2. O king who I'm installing on Zion, you ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession. You want to know why we're passionate about missions around here? Why we're passionate to go from here to the farthest corner of the earth? Because God has promised to Jesus Christ, you're going to get every nation, every tribe, every language. There is nowhere the sun rises, nowhere the sun sets that I am not interested in giving that to you. And the church should never narrow that focus down. So, friends, I ask you, when you read the Old Testament, are you reading it like a Pharisee or are you reading it like Paul? Which way? Ask yourself that. This is a challenge. This this changed my entire way of understanding the Scripture when I started to see this. And I started to say everything started coming into focus. It was like a few years back when I went in and the doctor put glasses on my face. And I was like, whoa. I thought the whole world had gotten fuzzy there for a while. And I discovered it wasn't the problem wasn't the world. The problem was my eyeballs. Well, we read the Scripture sometime like that, and here's the lens we put on is Jesus Christ. And you see everything through Him, everything to Him, everything about Him. That is how God is communicating to us in the Scripture. And what this means is this is important because, see, sometimes we go to the Bible and we want to find our heroes there. Who is the only hero in Scripture? Jesus. See, if you think somebody else is a hero, you are not reading very carefully. Who would actually like to have Jacob live next door to them? If you had Jacob live next door to you, you'd be broken homeless in a month. That guy was a shyster. Come on, let's get real. He was. How about David? You're okay until he sees your wife. Then he's got the mafia coming after you. Am I making this up? And so we look and we say, okay, these guys are supposed to be heroes, but I'm not sure. No, see, here's the answer. There is one hero, Jesus Christ. And everybody else points where when David's doing well and he stands there in faith and he slays the giant, he's a pointer towards Jesus Christ. And when he's not doing well and he is lying and getting Uriah drunk, and taking his wife, and having the man put to death, he's a pointer as to why you and I need Jesus Christ. Because even David botches it up consistently. Friends, there is one hero. Everyone else simply points to him. And every promise, every command, every character, every passage of Scripture needs to be read through the lens of Jesus Christ. If you are reading it any other way than showing you who Jesus is and, and your need for Him and everything you've been given in Him, that He is more than enough, then we're reading it wrongly. And I tell you, you're going to come to the end and you're going to be like Lennon. You're going to say, I, I, I don't get that. What, what was going on there? Because we've been reading it wrongly. Then the last area is Jesus is particularly interested in creating a redeemed people who will glorify and enjoy God. Now, if you remember back in question one, we saw, you know, why did God create us? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him. Okay, so glory to God brings joy to us. Glory to God, focusing on Jesus, oddly enough, brings us into focus as well. Because Jesus is concerned about a people. It's just that we're secondary, not primary. 
And so notice in John 17, there's a lot of verses again, because really everything from about the first, after the first third of the prayer, everything after that is really Jesus praying for us, praying for the church. But notice you can see a few of them here in the first 10 verses. In verse, uh, verse 2, we read, uh, you granted him authority all, over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Jesus said, Father, you gave me authority, and here's what the authority is for. There are a people, and I am getting them eternal life. In verse 6, I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. In verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. You see how Jesus keeps saying, look, there's the whole world. There's the whole mass of humanity. But friend, you need to understand something. If you are here and you are a believer, Jesus loved and died for you in a special way that is not just everybody else was out there. It is you are his people. You are his bride. You are his chosen. You are the ones that the Father gave to him. And he said, I am praying for them. And because, Father, you've given them to me and they are yours. Notice in verse 10, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. So see, now we're getting to that. Jesus is making this people. Why? So that they will bring glory to God. Right back where we started at the beginning of the captive. Uh, the catechism. So a core purpose in Jesus coming is creating and redeeming this people of God. And if you see this, they're given by the Father to the Son, verses 2, 6, and 9. They're prayed for by Jesus in verse 9. They bring glory to God in verse 10. And in fact, he goes on in verses 14 to 19. I'll show just a few more how central this is because this is why it's called the high priestly prayer. Jesus is interceding for us as his people. Notice in verses 14 to 19. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This whole thing's about the church. It's about the people of God. It's Jesus saying, Lord, this is what's going on. This is what's happening here. And Father, I'm not of the world, and therefore, because they're my people, they're no longer of the world. They're, they're not part of this whole thing that is so upside down. And so God in the Scripture is showing us that he has a desire for a people who will know, love, glorify, and enjoy him forever. And this is so packed in Scripture, we could take teaching after teaching just to talk about this point. I'm just going to throw out a couple of texts. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, the Apostle Paul is quoting out of the Old Testament. So notice how he reads the Old Testament. He says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And why are we the temple of God? Who lives in us? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit lives in us. And so, where is God's temple? Okay? Where is God's temple? It's us. If we build a building somewhere, is it God's temple? Is this God's temple? I hope not. It's a big metal warehouse with a nice front put on it, right? Okay? This is not God's temple. Look around you. This is the temple of God. 
Paul says, for we are God's temple, the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's a quote out of Leviticus 26, 12. Paul says, when you're reading Leviticus, and he's talking about the temple, you need to see Jesus, who's the true temple of God, and then you need to understand as the church you're the temple now because you're his body and the spirit lives in you and God's not interested in a building God's interested in a people that are his temple that are his bride notice you get to the end again revelation chapter 21 so we get to the end and the end of this story makes sense it fits with everything else and we get there and here's what we read I heard a loud voice from the throne saying now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That phrase that God looks and says, you are my people, and we look up and say, and you are our God, that runs throughout the whole Bible. It starts when it's going there with Abraham, and it carries all the way forward, and it is repeated over and over and over again, and it's at the heart of the new covenant, and you get down to at the end of Revelation, it says, now, that motto, that thing I've been saying over and over, it's done. I live among them. I walk among them. They are my dwelling. They are my temple. So the story of redemption is the story of God glorifying himself as he works to create and redeem this people who will do that. And when you read in the Old Testament, Israel so often is not doing that. And the reason they're not is because the Old Covenant was not sufficient. So the new covenant comes that we might be able to do that. And the Spirit, if you go back and look in John 14 to 16, I don't have time, that's where Jesus says, hey, the Spirit's going to come. And He has been with you. He's now going to live in you. And He's going to take everything I've given, and He's going to speak it to you, and He's going to guide you, and He's going to empower you. That is the glory and the promise of the new covenant. And so at the consummation, what else would it be but a wedding feast? And Jesus says, this is the bride towards whom my work was done. I was glorifying the Father by creating this people who love our God, who enjoy Him, and who will glorify Him forever. This is the work that God is doing, and it's what's happening. And friends, it's why the Spirit dwells in you and me. And understand, you can't glorify and enjoy God apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. We will always turn and run after wrong things. But by the Holy Spirit, He can stir that up with us. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I want you to pay attention. Again, almost every time we come to the Lord's table, or even when I pray when we're not at the table, if you notice, I almost always end crying out for the Holy Spirit to come, to fill us, to empower us, because you and I need fresh filling from the Holy Spirit. If I ask you, are you full of the Spirit, please don't tell me what God did in 1972. I don't really care what He did in 1972. I want to know what He's doing now. Because you can't live. If you kept manna for longer than a day, what happened? Right. You woke up the next morning and you had a, you had a box full of maggots. That's what you had. Okay? You need the Word of God every day. And friends, you need to cry out, Every day for the Holy Spirit to fill you. Every day for the Holy Spirit to fill me. You leak, and so do I. 
And so we need the Spirit to come and to fill us and to empower us so that we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So God is doing all of this, and I want you to understand the Spirit is given to you and me as a down payment that every bit of this is going to happen. He is given to us as a foretaste. In those moments when you are reading the Word of God, or we are worshiping, and you feel so close to God, that's a foretaste. And God says, what's going to happen is, this is going to be intensified, and purified, and strengthened, and it'll never fade. It'll get stronger, and stronger, and stronger. See, in the Old Testament, Moses goes in, God comes down, and the Spirit is dwelling there, and Moses walks out of the tabernacle, and his face is lit up with the glory of God, but what happens day by day? It gets less and less and less. But see, Paul tells us, no, in the new covenant, you're given the Spirit, so instead of less and less and less, it's going to be more and more and more. And when we get to heaven, it will just keep going forever. That's what God has done. The work that God began in Abram, continued in the people of Israel, is now finding its fulfillment in the church. The one people of God, comprised of Jew and Gentile, people from every nation, every language, who inherit all of God's covenant promises through Jesus and who are being prepared as God's one true bride who are going to glorify and enjoy Him for how long? Forever. That is what the Scripture is about. And so you don't have to sit there and come to the end and say, uh, Brett, that made no sense at all. Well, I, I, don't, I don't get that. We can understand what God is doing. So how do we apply this and we'll come to the table? Just one question. Do I understand the central message of Scripture? Do I understand? Now, the words that I wrote out there are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's my attempt to try and surmise it. But if I ask you, can you summarize what the Scripture is about, your answer ought to look something pretty similar to that. If it's something different than that, then we're not understanding the message of scripture. And if we don't understand the plot, see then what happens is you miss the individual parts. They don't make sense. When you understand the plot of a movie or a book or a story, it makes all the individual pieces make sense. So do I see that the central focus in scripture is God, not me? This is so important. Because so many Christians today, we come and we open our Bible, and I'm asking God, God, what's, what's in this for me today? And friends, you and I do need to hear from God today. But if I come with that approach, I've already started the whole thing out backwards. I've already come in the wrong way, and I promise you, it, it will not make sense. And after a while, I just, I just, you know what, i got other things to do today. I don't have time to really read the Word because I've been coming to it for the wrong thing. Do I come for God as the focus? Or me? Do I see that the central character in Scripture is Jesus, not some other person, some other institution, some other nation? There are whole programs you can listen to on Christian radio, evangelicals today, that are about some other little aspect, and Jesus is not what's going on there. Okay, but that, that's getting it backwards again. Do, do I see that it is Jesus and not something else? And do I understand that the focus on Jesus' person and work is the church, not just me as an individual? See, here's the thing. In our culture, we're very focused on the individual. But see, Jesus was praying for 
the church. And if you even think of the model prayer Jesus gave us, that we we all know, right? The Lord's Prayer, how does it begin? Our Father. How many singular pronouns are there in that prayer? You can look all day. There's not a one. They're all plural. Because there is a focus on the church. But see, we in America want to make everything about me. Now, as part of the church, there is an individual place. But it's if I try to come in individual and then I'm going to add the community of the church to it, I've got it backwards. Just like there is enjoyment for me, but if I come and make myself central rather than the glory of God, I've got it all backwards. Everything only makes sense when we come in the way that God has. So do I understand the focus of Jesus' person and work is the church. Huge problem in our culture today. Christians think it's primarily about me and Jesus, and if I really have time, I'll fit this thing church in. Jesus says you've got the whole thing backwards then. It's not the way it works. Jesus is here with the church, and we experience in the context of that. That's really how the New Testament views uh, the relationship between God and people, actually the whole of Scripture. So many modern books, teachings, ideas in the evangelical church. I'm not talking about people who don't believe the Bible. I'm not talking about people who, you know, don't think Jesus is still dead. I'm talking about evangelicals, okay? Bible-believing people, whatever their denomination or group. We tend to focus on man rather than God, on things other than Jesus in the Scripture, as if the Scripture is really here to answer all those types of questions, and on me as an individual in isolation from the church. But if I'm coming in with that kind of being the threefold strand in my approach to Scripture, that rather than centered on God, it's centered on me, rather than centered on Jesus, it's all kinds of these other things going on, and rather than being centered on the church rather than me as an individual, if I've come in on the other column, then I'm going to be distorting everything inside because I've already got the whole plot line wrong, and I'm going to be trying to fit other pieces inside of it, and you know what? It's not going to make sense. I've got the whole thing backwards. To use Marty's analogy this morning, it's like I've got a a NATOPS, except for I've got it for the wrong aircraft. And so the gauges aren't making sense, and I'm trying to fit in there. Well, it's because you've got the whole thing backwards here. You're You're not paying attention to what's going on. God has written it so that we might understand for who we actually are, who we exist to be. But if we read it correctly, then we understand it. So the question is, does this plot shape my life? God bringing glory to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ as he creates and redeems a people and whom he lives by his spirit so that they can glorify and enjoy him forever. Does that shape my life so that it's focused on God's glory, it's centered on Christ and his work, and it is oriented towards the church as the people of God? Does that plot line orient the way you're going to wake up tomorrow? To the extent that it does, the result comes out glorifying and enjoying God. To the extent that it doesn't, and I'm flipping any one or two or all three of those things, to that extent, I'm not glorifying and I won't enjoy God. So, we're going to come to the table because the Lord's table is a regular reinforcement of this central message. Because here... Of course, we remember and we celebrate the person, 
and the work of Jesus Christ, his body and his blood that are broken for us to redeem us and to bring us into God's presence. And here we come to commune with God and with one another. Have you noticed this sacrament and its very name is communion, which means it's not something I'm supposed to really do on my own. I do it with and as part of the church. Now, if somebody was in jail somewhere, but as a regular thing, we do this together because Jesus is trying to give us a message. This is the one that we do over and over and over again, and he's saying you do this as my people. And so here today, I want to encourage you, if you are a believer, please come and let's commune with God and one another, and let's come as the people of God and give thanks to God for what he has done, for who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And I want to remind you that what that means is how many of God's covenant promises belong to you? All of them. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ. And we say amen to the glory of God. That's possible. You see how that all works? That's what we're doing. Everything Jesus got for us that he bought with body and blood is yours. So come, give thanks, and say amen to the glory of God. Uh, we will have a gluten-free option if you cannot eat gluten because uh, you have an allergy. If you raise your hand in a couple moments, we will give that to you. Other than that, friends, I remind you, this meal is for believers. If you understand that the only hope you have of glorifying and enjoying God is Jesus Christ, His living, His dying, His being raised, bringing salvation to you, then we encourage you to please eat with us. If you don't believe that, then you should let the plate pass because in taking the bread and in taking the cup, we're proclaiming we do believe that. And then please see me right afterwards so we can talk about that. And I'd love to talk with you about who Jesus is and what he's done. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, how he has revealed you and all he has done for us and for our salvation. So we take this meal today in thanksgiving in his name. Amen. As you get the elements, please hold on them together, and we will take them in a couple of moments. And I encourage you today to be thanking, thinking, and giving thanks to God for who Jesus is and all he has done. Father, you are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. All things have come from you, and everything exists by your will and pleasure. 
you made us good, created in your image, able to glorify and enjoy you forever. But our father Adam sinned, exchanging your priceless glory for our worthless desires. And taking this bread, we confess your glory and perfection and our sin and need. Look with mercy on us now because of the broken body of our Lord Jesus, for we are your people through him. Friends, take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are the eternal Son of God. You shared glory with the Father and the Spirit before space and time even came to be. But you humbled yourself, taking our nature so that you might rescue us. In your flesh, you were fully obedient to the Father, fulfilling the obligations at which we had failed so miserably. And your obedience continued right through the cross, where you suffered and died for our disobedience. Your obedience and suffering are of infinite value, bearing the full wrath of God against sin, overcoming Satan and death, and giving perfect righteousness to us. In taking this cup, we give you thanks for your perfect obedience and suffering in our place, and we receive your gift in faith, embracing you as Savior and Lord. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Friends, can you stand with me for our concluding word of prayer and benediction? And I encourage you to cry out to the Holy Spirit to fall fresh upon you. Holy Spirit, we give you thanks for your great work in applying the redemption made by Jesus for us as his people. For when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you regenerated us, making us alive and new. You are the one who dwells in us, filling us, comforting and guiding us, giving us spiritual gifts, and empowering us to resist sin and obey and enjoy God. You are the one bringing unity to the church so that together we might glorify and enjoy God and declare His praises throughout the earth. So we cry out to you now, fill us again. Stir up your gifts within us so that we might serve others in love. Anoint our tongue so that we might boldly proclaim the gospel to our family, neighbors, co-worker, and friends. Strengthen our desire to glorify and enjoy God and drive lukewarmness and sin far from us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, for the glory of God and for our good. And those who agree say, Amen. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us 
what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people receive this promise saying, Amen. Go in the blessing of God, friends. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.